This morning, a study that I've entitled simply, The Garden. We'll be taking verse 39 through 53 here in the 22nd chapter of Luke's Gospel. And this scene as Jesus now leaves the disciples, as He begins the journey towards the cross, next up He will be in the presence of Annas and Caiaphas, Pilate and Herod. He'll be tried illegally six different occasions. But this morning, this incredible event, it's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew chapter 26, John chapter 18, Mark chapter 14. All four Gospels give us details and insights, and it is there that we find out that this place that he goes to, because we don't find it in Luke's Gospel, but this place is none other than the Garden of Gethsemane. It's called a garden by John and Mark. It's called Gethsemane by Matthew. But it is this place on the Mount of Olives that Jesus often went to to get some quiet time alone. When I was out at the camp, I had a spot out on a ridge that had a pile of rocks and there had been more than a handful of occasions when I would go there and and pray and many times to to weep and to seek the Lord and to spend time where basically no one could find me where I would just have some private time with the Lord when you're in public ministry very often that is the thing that lacks just some time with you and Jesus This was the same place that Jesus went for the same reason. He went to be alone with His Father. Probably you all have a spot where you find it easy to sit down. Your prayer closet, we often call those places. Sometimes it's a prayer tree, or in my case, a prayer rock, or a prayer ridge, or maybe a prayer truck, or a prayer car, or a prayer lawn, or... Wherever it is for you, some place that it's just you and God. It's an important place in all of our lives. And I would remind you that as we look at this in the life of Jesus, if Jesus felt it necessary, facing the roughest day of his life on this earth to go seek his Father, we are getting some true insight into the necessity of prayer and to the power of that prayer, even in the life of Jesus the Christ. I encourage you, as you listen to this passage, as we study it together, make it a part of your life to find a place where you can go and be alone with God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we thank You that we too can every moment that we desire it retire to the garden. Lord, to seek Your strength, to seek Your power, to seek Your presence, to seek Your face. And so God, as we open Your Word this morning, again, we just simply request of You that You would teach us, instruct us, bless us. Holy Spirit, come and inhabit this place. Fall upon us afresh and new. Would we see these words from a different place than ever before? 
We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Verse 39, you'll notice it begins with two simple words, coming out. He's coming out of the upper room. He's leaving that place where he's delivered now, the upper room discourse. He's instituted what we call communion. He shared with them a final Passover Seder. And he has given them all of these wonderful instructions that you find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's Gospel. He's given them the final words, if you will, that he's really going to speak to them in what we would call a parabolic way. He's given them the final stories. They're all done. And he's now coming out of that room, and he's coming to the Mount of Olives. And I would simply ask that as we go through these words, that you would maybe circle or underline or mark with a pencil those times that you find the word he or him or his. This is a very personal time that Jesus is now going to have in the garden. And he went out to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed after him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from from them about a stone's throw, no further than you could throw a rock. And he knelt down and he prayed. He's facing the cross, he's facing the agony. And so great will that agony be that it will result in him sweating, as Luke will record and Luke alone, these great drops of blood. And he knelt and he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping with sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Remember who this is. This is the only begotten Son of God. The last minutes with his disciples, the last moments he will stand before his own father sinless. Think about it for a second. From the beginning of eternity, whenever that was, to this very moment, 
Jesus the Son, and God the Father, the Holy Spirit, had never known separation. Ever. Not ever in all of eternity had Jesus the Son been disassociated from his Father God. And so he asked the question, As Emmanuel, God wrapped in human flesh, fully God and yet fully man, an odd word that we call the hypostatic union, somehow in the mind of God, Jesus, fully God, and yet at the same time, exactly like you and I. what Jesus was born to do. This was the climax. He had reached the one day where all of this was going to come to fruition. Because you see what started in another garden. Do you remember that story? The first garden was going to be taken care of in this garden. And one day there will be another garden when God brings a new heaven and a new earth. But it was this garden that Jesus came to. It was a garden of agony. It was a place of pressing. It was Gethsemane. The name simply means the olive press or the oil press. It was a place of pressing, not just of the fruit of the olive tree, but of the very Son of God. Interesting, when you travel to Israel, or many locations, one of them, a, a place that we went to called Yad Hashmanah, and you can go there and actually see an ancient olive press. And what was done to those olives in order to extract the oil was excruciating. They were literally ground into a pulp and then pressed and squeezed until virtually nothing was left of them but that which was poured out, the oil. And that is the Lord Jesus in this passage. It's also interesting to me that Judas picks the very place that he knew Jesus would be because Jesus always went to the Mount of Olives to pray. He's sure that he would find him there. A nice quiet spot to arrest the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because they could have done that at any point in time during this last week that we've been studying. Judas could have said, there he is right there, just arrest him. But he waited until Jesus was in the sweetest place that he had on this earth. Adding, I believe, to the agony. When we call this place a garden, you know, for some of us, I, I think of the Mirabelle Garden that you've all seen in The Sound of Music in, in Salzburg. I think of Schönbrunn in Vienna. I think of these wonderful gardens that you just wander through down these stone pathways and flowers. That was not this kind of garden. This was not like Versailles. This was simply a quiet, shady place that was overgrown with some olive trees. 
That's all it was. These trees that you see in this photo are from the actual believed Garden of Gethsemane. And when I say that, uh, when you travel to Israel, depending on who you talk to, it's here, it's there, or it's over there, or it's 50 feet this way, and the Greek Orthodox Church believes it's here, and the Roman Catholic Church believes it's here, and the Evangelical Christians think it's halfway between the two. But these trees have had some coring done on them, and it's believed that the rootstock of these trees could well be a couple of thousand years old. And so next to the Church of the Agony, next to the Church of All Nations, this little tiny place where there's just a handful of olive trees that you could sit under to get out of the sun, Jesus meets his Father there in the garden. And I think of this time... And I often wonder, as the disciples sat there with Jesus underneath these trees and just a stone's throw away, you can see it there, that Jesus actually gives them a bit of warning and he repeats it. He says, pray that you don't fall into temptation. And he's making a very clear differentiation between thinking a thought and taking an action. Because as that's translated from the original language, it means to not act on the temptation. To don't fall for it is the way we would actually say it in English today. Don't fall for the temptation. And very often people look at temptation and they confuse it with sin itself. To be tempted is not sin. And in fact, Jesus himself was tempted. He was taken out. Uh, there in Mark chapter 1, to be tempted by Satan. Amen? And yet he was still sinless. So it is not a sin to be tempted. And so the disciples here gathered together with Jesus are about to see something that they are not going to like. And the temptation is to turn tail and run. The temptation is to deny the Lord. The temptation is to think things that are not indicative of the character and the nature of the Savior. There was a temptation, but Jesus was saying, be careful, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the temptation. And so as Jesus speaks to them, even in the midst of his agony, there's guidance. The temptation to surrender, flee. All kinds of things befall us as the body of Christ. Amen? I, I was uh, skiing on Friday. And you know, when you, when you go for a few days and you're hanging out with your friends, and especially if that friend happens to be a pretty good skier, there's a temptation to try and outdo one another. There is a temptation to think that you are younger than you actually are. And there is a temptation to believe your own lies that you're actually much better than you really are. There are many temptations in life. And, and Jeff and I, we're, we're known as the Jeffs. We don't actually have an individual name when we're together. And so we decided to drop in on this very steep black diamond run. Now, I normally ski black diamond runs. It's not a big deal. But this one was marked incorrectly so far as I could tell. It should have had two of those black things on there. But the temptation as we stood there was, oh, I can take this guy. And he was thinking the same thing. 
And as we dropped in, we're... We have made a serious error in judgment. And all of a sudden, you find yourself standing on those edges and you're trying to grind off as much snow as you possibly can. You see, we're prone to temptation. We're prone to think we're better than we really are. And Jesus says, pray that you don't fall for the temptation. Now, we both made it down. I made it down in one piece. Jeff made it down in about 23 pieces. The reason I share that with you, we had the same temptation. I realized I was going to die. He still thought that he was going to make it. Be careful how you respond to temptation. There was divine guidance here. The only way, the only way you can fight this kind of of foe is to pray. That's exactly what I did as I was skiing. I'm like, Lord, God, forgive me for being an idiot. Why did I do this? And God heard my prayer. It was a simple prayer. Let me live. (laughs) I have a wife. Children, I want to see them again. Don't fall for the temptation. Notice it says there in verse 41 that he was withdrawn about a stone's throw. He knelt down and, and prayed. Now, remember that stoning was a common method of capital punishment. And the inference is here that Jesus was close enough that if someone had wanted to kill him, they could have stoned him from there. That's the inference. He was a stone's throw from death. He was a stone's throw from the disciples. He was that close. And he went to meet with his father for some guidance. And he was that close to finishing what he came to start. And to finish. And remember that Second Corinthians chapter 5 reminds us that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Jesus was completely innocent as he knelt down in the garden. He had done nothing. And yet he was praying for you and praying for me. Can you imagine as he cries out, Father, take this cup from me. Throughout Scripture, we find all kinds of different cups that Israel itself would be a cup of trembling for the nations, as Zechariah declared. But this cup is figurative, and you can almost imagine him looking into it and looking to the bottom of that cup and seeing the blackness of your heart. The blackness of my heart, the blackness, the deep darkness of all of the hearts of all of mankind for all of time as he looks into that cup. 
Father God, take this cup from me if it's your will. Now remember, he's human. He has human limitations that he has himself taken on. He's still fully God. But he said, for their sakes, I will be their sin bearer. I'll take their sin. I'll take their punishment. I will be arrested so they can be set free. And he looks into that cup. He sees it and he speaks and he surrenders. He takes the cup. As Philippians chapter 2 says, He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He didn't have to. That's why he asked Father God the question. He did not have to. Nobody forced Jesus to die. He went willingly to Calvary's cross. He looked into that cup, and as black as it was, he said, I'll drink it. I'll do it for them. And even in all of that, and I love this, there was still grace. Think about it for a second. And yet there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. I love this. Even though God the Father is going to turn His back on Jesus the Son because of the weight of the sins of all of mankind being heaped upon His shoulders, God can't be in the presence of sin. He can't look on His own Son. And so He's going to turn His eyes away from Jesus for the first time in eternity. Even in that, there's grace. And so He sends an angel and this, this word here that's translated strengthening, it's, it's one that's beyond really our own word strengthen because it's actually not even possible in the human sense. It's not something that could be humanly done. It's beyond our human emotions. It's beyond our mental capacities. It's beyond our physical abilities. It's beyond our spiritual understanding. God sends an angel to do what no man on this earth could have done for Jesus. If all of the disciples, you know, when someone is sick, we lay hands, we pray for them, anoint them with oil. We can do that. And in fact, James says that the, the, effective, the, the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. But this was so above and beyond any human capacity for us to call from heaven the power of God that it took an angel to minister to Jesus by grace. God says, there's nobody there to help my son. I'll send an angel. And I want you to understand that if Satan had been able, if Satan had been able, he would have killed Jesus right there. He would, have, he would have killed him if he could have done it. But that wasn't God's plan. Jesus came to die. He came to go to the cross. As hard as it is for us to understand how anyone could ever do that, it's what he came to do. There was grace in that moment. Back in Luke chapter 16, the parable, the unjust steward uses that same word translated here, strengthening. 
And it meant beyond capacity. Remember, he says, I cannot dig. There's no, I can't do it. This was so far beyond the capacity of God in human flesh that it took an angel by grace to strengthen him. And notice the groans. And being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly as sweat, as it were, were like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There actually is a a medical condition known as hematridosis. And it's when you are under such great stress, emotional stress, that your body undergoes a physical crushing. Your capillaries squeeze so tightly from the tension of the stress that you're under that it causes blood to burst into your, from your capillaries into your sweat glands and you literally sweat drops of blood. It's not a guess. Prisoners, right before execution, often have this happen. During the Blitzkrieg in London, very common in children and women who were waiting, their husbands are at war and they're waiting for a V2 buzz bomb to blow them to bits. Under so much stress, mothers caring for their children that they would literally sweat blood. This is our Savior groaning over what's coming. Now it's hard to imagine God having that kind of stress and pain and anguish and agony, but that's what happened to Jesus in the garden. Thinking about you. I think it's so important for us to personalize this passage and all that will happen for the remainder of this book. You have to realize, I have to realize, we must understand and realize that all this happened to Jesus because of me. Because of you. It wasn't just Judas. It wasn't just Annas and Caiaphas. It wasn't Herod. It wasn't Pilate. It was not the people crying out, we want Barabbas. It was me. That cup he took was my cup. He took the cup of my condemnation and exchanged it for the cup of sanctification. He said, look, I'll change their nature. I'll make them new creations in me. But I will have to give my life in their place. And so he begins this time of pain. And just as the first Adam had sinned in the garden there in Genesis chapter 3, so the last Adam, Jesus, obeyed the Father. You see, there was disobedience. Now there's obedience to God. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it for them. And I love the fact that the angel comes. Because angels can't die for your sins but they could strengthen Jesus. I love the fact that my Heavenly Father, should I have need of them, can call down some angels, because I put them to the test fairly regularly. I love that, that in my groaning there's grace. 
It says he prayed more earnestly. It actually is a is a rare Greek word that means to stretch. And it actually means to go beyond what is possible for that thing being stretched. Remember like 15 years ago there was that toy, Stretch Armstrong. You remember those? You could like grab the arms and like you could, somebody could go to the next house over and the arms would stretch that far. But eventually the arms would come flying off because you st- poor Stretch Armstrong was stretched beyond his capacity to be stretched. That's what this is. He prayed all the more earnestly. He prayed so much that he even stretched the boundaries of his ability to pray. Think about that for a second. That in that earnest prayer for you, for me, for us, for the world, as he's crying out to God, he goes to the limit of his ability to pray. For me. Jeff's going to be a mess. He's going to be born the day that Disneyland opens. He's going to be a mess. He's going to need my attention. His life is going to come flying apart, Father God. Think about how Jesus would have needed to pray for the whole world. Finally, we see the disciples' guilt here in this passage. He rose up from prayer and he he finds them asleep from sorrow. They're scared, and rightly so, are they not? Their world is coming apart. They're frightened. Their master is like, the dude's lost his mind. You, You can imagine what the disciples may have thought about Jesus. He's got this Messiah complex and nothing can stop him. And he's challenging the authorities and he's saying he's going to die. And now it looks like his words are going to come true. Have you ever fallen asleep from crying? I have. I have. I have wept myself to sleep. And it's always over people. It's never over stuff. It's always over people. Stuff comes and goes. People are eternal. They're going to live one place or the other. I've had those times where it's just like, Lord, I don't have any, I have no tears left. We use that phrase. I do not have any tears left. The disciples fall asleep from sorrow. But he says to them, Why do you sleep? You see, Jesus has gotten through his hour of temptation. The temptation was, Father, I'm not taking this cup. But he says, I'll take it. He's passed his test. Christ has said, I'll take it. I'll do it. Of my own volition, I will gladly give my life in their place. But the disciples are about to be tested. Their time hasn't even come yet. Their hour was about to begin. Maybe it was because they were super tired. I don't know. But I know this. God's grace would be sufficient even for their failures because we get the rest of the story. And I love that. Because if you leave it here with them sleeping, this is a pretty miserable story. Notice 
verse 47 as he goes on. And while he was still speaking, he's speaking to the disciples. He's saying, look, guys, please rise, pray. Don't be tempted. Don't be tested beyond what is able. Get up. You can't pray while you're sleeping. Isn't that bizarre when you sit down to pray how often you, you know, if you're like me, you doze off. Anybody else, you know, woken up with your face in your Bible with drool on one ear? I've done that. I'm like, I'm praying. The disciples are kind of like that. I, I think they were praying, but they just got exhausted and they fell asleep. And while Jesus was still speaking, Behold, a multitude, if you have a King James Bible, it says a cohort there, and I'll give a little more on that in a second. A multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And now I encourage you, please read the rest of the stories in the Gospels, because it gives some further insights. I'll just highlight a few things to you. The Judas actually comes up and says, Rabbi, Rabbi. Even is recorded by one of the gospel authors, great rabbi. It was a sign of respect. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of love. This to me is one of the most riveting passages in the entire Bible of human interaction with Jesus. Because this passage would never have gotten into the Bible had I been Jesus. It wouldn't have made it. I'd have left Judas with everybody without a chance to repent. And yet Jesus still, after saying, the one who dips his hand with me is my betrayer. Judas Judas then leaves the group and he goes off. They know by now it's Judas. Every one of the disciples knows who the betrayer is. drew near to Jesus to kiss him. That was an oriental sign. It still is. You'll you'll see very often, especially in the Arab countries, when people greet each other, if it's two women, two men, they will kiss each other on the cheek. It's still done to this day. It was a sign of respect. It was a sign that that person was your friend. It was you putting down every argument, everything, whatever had happened in the past was gone. Today we are friends. To kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas? He asked him a question. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You don't have to. It's not too late. You don't have to do this. I'll go to the cross. I'll tell them who I am. People often forget this about this passage. Jesus, Jesus could have simply raised his hand. Had Judas turned away and repented, Jesus would have said, it's me. They would have still arrested him. And Judas could have been saved. But Judas was not saved. Judas made his choice. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Time was up. 
Basically, Jesus looked right at him and said, Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure? Do you want to rethink it? Now, now I tell you, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of the graciousness of God's calling on our lives and how long He goes in suffering with us while we are being disobedient, rebellious, and denying Him. Because if ever there were a case of someone having chance after chance after chance, it was Judas. And it's also the tragic story of someone who did not take those chances to do the right thing and to repent. And it cost Judas his eternity. He perished because of this moment. You will not find him in heaven. He will reside in hell. Jesus said so. He's going to go on and call the whole thing evil and associate him with Satan. But I want you to see the overkill here. Notice it. Mind-boggling in its simplicity. But as you see this cohort that comes, a cohort meant a tenth part of a legion. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. Judas brought the high priests, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, all these people are mentioned in the four Gospels, in a cohort, 600 armed Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. What were they expecting? What were they thinking? We get from Peter what he was thinking. And truly, verse 22, remember, says, the Son of Man goes as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus had warned Judas back in verse 22, don't do it. And yet for 30 pieces of silver, he says, nah. I'm going to betray my master. And the Lord at this point abandons Judas to his doom. That kiss on Jesus' cheek was Judas saying, I'll take hell, thank you. Verse 49, notice the battle here in the garden. And then those around him saw what was going to happen. And they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now we know again, you need to read all uh, of the gospel accounts of this, but in John chapter 18, Jesus himself tells us it's Peter. So we know who it is that lops off Malchus's ear. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and caught off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, and I love this, he's talking to the guy, he's, would you permit me? Would you allow me? Would you give me the honor to undo what my knucklehead disciple just did to you. See, I didn't come to take this world with a sword. 
I came that the world might have life, and that life abundant. And so would you permit me to put your ear back on? And he touched his ear and he healed him. And you, you have to love Peter. You know, you really do. I call him Saint Impetuous of Jerusalem. But And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the captains of the temple guards and to the elders who had come, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Do I look like a threat to you is what he's saying? Have you known me ever to be a threat to anyone ever? You came here with an armed cohort of Roman soldiers? He says, when I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try and seize me. But this is your hour. And the power of darkness. Notice what he says to them. What Judas put into play right here is the power of darkness. And there's only one from whom that comes, and that's Satan himself. He's empowered by Satan. Again, Peter, you know, Second Corinthians chapter 10 reminds us, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Amen? For our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty under the taking down of the strongholds of the enemy. Peter is thinking wrong weapon again. And Jesus is saying, look, this is a spiritual battle. You don't need a sword. I'll surrender. I'll go with you. I'll do it. That's what I came to do. Perhaps Peter thought that I've always tried to figure out, and I've never really come to any conclusion in my own heart or mind, what in the world Peter was thinking. I mean, I really can't. It's like, now imagine, we know because we've already been told that they have two swords, right? They've got two swords. Now, I don't think they undertook ninja training. So you've got Peter, James, John, the rest of the disciples, and two swords against 600 battle-hardened, fully trained, completely armored, shielded Roman soldiers. What was he thinking? Ha ha! You know, it's like something out of a movie. Like, I'll just attack one of them, and then the rest of the guys will join in, and somehow we're going to... Maybe it was faith. I don't know. Possible. Maybe... He's just dense as a brick. That also is possible. Maybe he thinks if he just, you know, somebody's got to charge in first. I don't know. But I do know this. It wasn't what the Lord wanted. And it was completely ineffective. It didn't work. You know why we know that? Because Jesus picked up the ear. Permit me, please. My zealous disciples over here have the wrong picture again. So don't be too hard on yourself if maybe you've got some zeal and you maybe don't do the right thing sometime and you live long enough to look, man, I probably shouldn't have done that that way. The disciples could do that, so can we. And there's grace for those moments. And I love, now imagine... This is a pretty cool opportunity for the Lord to do something miraculous in front of a whole bunch of people that don't believe that He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Can you imagine what they were thinking, all these Roman soldiers, as they're marching around Jesus to take him back to Pilate? Take him back to Annas and Caiaphas? Is there marching back with Jesus? Well, this is a little weird. The dude just put an ear back on Malchus. Thinking, I don't want no part of this. The very people that should have taken the lead in welcoming the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords are the very ones that came after him to kill him. And so Jesus says to them, Look, when I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try and seize me. How come? On the sixth day before Passover, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, they could have arrested him. The fourth day before Passover, Palm Sunday, they could have arrested him. When he went into the temple the first time, they could have arrested him. When he flipped over the money changers' temple, that was enough to arrest him. They had a whole week to arrest Jesus. And what did they do? They overkill with a bunch of soldiers and they go into a garden in the middle of the night to arrest Jesus. I think they were afraid. I think they still had fear. And so Jesus simply says to them, this is your hour. And this is the power of darkness. Satan's hand was in every bit of this moment. Because Jesus would have simply said, I'm him. All they had to do was just send one guy to go collect Jesus. He would have gone. It's what he came for. And he still would have offered no answer to his accusers. Because that's what he came for. He would have still uh, turned his face to be struck because that's what he came for. He would have still picked up the cross because that's what he came for. The forces of darkness, both human and demonic, do have their time. We see them in our world today. Amen? We see them in our world today. If you can't see uh, the demonic forces that work in this world, you, you need to take a little bit harder look at the world around you. Because there is nothing right about beheading some innocent journalist. If that isn't satanic, I don't know what it is. That is satanic. Satan's still got a little bit of time left. But can I give you a little preview of Revelation? His time's about over. And Jesus is coming soon what he came to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for you reminding us of what happened that night in the garden. Lord, in the face of great adversity, so much so that you, Jesus, were so pressed that you sweat great drops of blood for us. Lord, we just are amazed at your love for us. Lord, that you looked into that cup and you didn't throw it away. You took it willingly. Lord, for me, for us. And I want to pray specifically this morning if there's anybody here that's never come into that right relationship with you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, that they wouldn't contemplate leaving this place without inviting you into their hearts for you to be 
the only one, Lord, the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only one that can bring salvation. Lord, I pray that no one would leave this place without you. God, we know Judas did leave the garden without you. You said so. God, we don't want anyone to leave this place without you, Jesus. And so, Father, we just pray by your Spirit that you'd convince and convict. And, Lord, we thank you for your grace poured out in our lives, Lord. That the agony of that garden, Lord, the pain that you went through, as you were arrested, we were set free. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. All God's people said, Amen.